This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is a science podcast for December 17, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we share the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. This is a special week. Every year, Science names its top breakthrough of the year and nine runners-up. Online news editor Catherine Matisic joins me to discuss the breakthrough in runners, basically what our editors consider some of the biggest innovations of 2021. After that, books editor Valerie Thompson is here to share her list of top science books for the year, from an immunology primer by a YouTuber to a contemplation of the universe interwoven with a close-up look at how the science sausage is made. You may have noticed we're getting really close to the end of the year here. And as is the tradition here at Science, we have a breakthrough of the year to announce and nine runners up. Online news editor Catherine Matisic coordinated this monster section, and she's going to tell us about some of the stuff, not all. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Sarah. I think we should save the breakthrough for last. I think that's another tradition. But let's get to some of the runners up, some of the top science as anointed by our editors. First is my favorite. This is a combination of two things, environmental DNA and ancient DNA. This is about picking up tiny fragments of DNA in the environment and doing something kind of new with it. What happened in 2021 there? For the last few years, improvements in all kinds of technology have allowed scientists to fish DNA from the soil itself. And recently, they've been using their techniques on ancient cave dirt. This year, for the first time, scientists uncovered DNA that used to reside in the nucleus of human cells. Right. This has been done with mitochondrial DNA. But in 2021, they got nuclear DNA. It's from humans or human cousins. It's nuclear DNA. And also, it's from a really long time ago. Before this, researchers had to depend on fossils to learn about ancient hominids. And there really aren't that many of those. Until now, the entire field of ancient human DNA depended on genomes from just 23 archaic humans, and 18 of those are Neanderthals. So what do we learn about ancient humans and our cousins from the dirt DNA in these caves? Well, for one, we learned that they really like caves. <laughs> oh, no. But seriously, we found that in Spain, nuclear DNA revealed the genetic identity and sex of the humans who lived there and suggested that of three groups of Neanderthals who lived in this one cave, just one remained after the last ice age. A cave in the country of Georgia revealed a female human genome that represents a previously unknown line of Neanderthals. 
And something about bears and wolves also came out from this kind of research. That's the best part. Yeah. Scientists also use dirt DNA to reconstruct the animal occupation of several caves. In Georgia, researchers turned up ancient DNA from bisons and extinct wolves. And in northern Mexico, 12,000-year-old DNA from four black bears revealed that their descendants migrated as far north as Alaska as the last ice age warmed. Okay, we're going to talk fusion. If this was fusion working, outputting more energy than was input, we would definitely be dominating it for breakthrough of the year or making it breakthrough of the year. That's not what happened. But what was the big advancement for fusion this year? So even though researchers didn't hit the elusive break-even point, they did produce more energy than ever before. In August, researchers fired a laser at a tiny cluster of hydrogen isotopes and got more than two-thirds of the way to break even. That's miles ahead of where they were before. And the reason, they think, is because their shot also created something known as a burning plasma. That's a byproduct when the fusion reaction generates enough heat to spread through the compressed fuel like a flame. If they're able to repeat this, what can they do to kind of keep pushing it forward, getting more and more energy? So far, their other attempts have been only about half as good as the August shot. To make them better, scientists are trying to tweak the starting conditions. So using larger or smoother fuel capsules, more layers of frozen fuel, or higher quality laser pulses. This method involves an incredibly powerful laser and a tiny little pellet of fuel. But there are a couple of other technologies scientists are using to get fusion to work or trying to get fusion to work. Are they seeing similar successes? Even though the big joke of fusion is that this is the field that promises the stars but never quite delivers, private companies are using things like high-temperature superconducting magnets and particle beams, and they're starting to get some results as well. It's like our physics reporter said to me the other day, before the Wright brothers proved that flying was possible, people had been trying to take to the air for hundreds of years. But once they showed it could be done, millions in private funding flowed into the market, and we had our first commercial jetliner within decades. I am hoping, 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 for all our sakes, that fusion will soon be at a similar tipping point. But as always, we got to stay tuned for that one. The 2020 breakthrough of the year was the COVID-19 vaccines. And now here we are in 2021 and we have antiviral medicines that work against COVID-19 as a runner up. Why does this innovation deserve the honor? Well, vaccines are still critical at preventing infection and reducing severe disease and death. But some people are unable to get vaccinated or they live in places where it's still hard to get a shot even one year on. Plus, as we've seen, breakthrough infections are a major worry for older and immunocompromised individuals. That's why new antiviral pills, which can stop the virus from replicating once it's inside the body, are such a big deal. If they work as well as advertised, and that's always a question. Yeah, I feel like that could change. <laughs> that could change next week. But if they work as well as advertised, they could reduce deaths slash hospitalizations and potentially cut transmission of COVID-19 worldwide. There's more than one, we were saying, antivirals. Correct. 
And some of them are approved, some of them are in process, and it might even change between when we're recording and when this goes live. But let's talk about the ones we know about and what we know about how they work. So the key, first of all, from the user end is that they have to be taken within days of the very first symptoms to work. Merck's antiviral, which has raised some concern, works by introducing mutations to the virus as it replicates. A five-day course of those pills reduces the risk of hospitalization or death by 30%, according to the latest results. Pfizer's antiviral, which stops the virus from replicating by interfering with an enzyme needed to assemble new viral particles, that one reduces hospitalization by 89% after a five-day course. But you have to remember, neither of these results has been fully published and neither of them have been reviewed in a peer-reviewed journal. Right. So this is a little bit of a press release science situation, but a lot of people are thinking that they will work to some extent. That's right. These are basically a complement to vaccines, but are they for people who have been vaccinated? So far, they've only been tested in unvaccinated individuals, but they absolutely could be for people who have been vaccinated. That's because breakthrough infections are on the rise, and older people whose immune systems don't respond to vaccinations as well as those of younger folks could benefit from a course of pills if they start them as soon as symptoms appear. But here's the disclaimer. As of the taping of this podcast, neither pill has been approved for use in the U.S., though an FDA advisory panel narrowly voted to give Merck's drug the green light. Okay, next we're going to do the last runner-up that we're going to dive into. It's in the field of embryology. In 2021, studying mammalian and even human embryos got easier. What happened, Catherine? Human embryos are really hard to study because of all sorts of legal, practical, and ethical limitations. But this year, researchers created a few new substitutes. Mouse embryos that stayed alive for much longer than ever before, and embryo replicas made out of human stem cells or reprogrammed adult cells. So starting with mice here, they got the embryos to 11 days. That's pretty far in a mouse. You actually have some legs on there. What is this in terms of human development? So in terms of human development, it's almost a month. And what is really cool is, you know, you said that now mouse embryos can be reared for 11 days. The previous record was only about three or four days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. And the, and the way the researchers did this was really cool because one key step was giving the embryos a ride on something that looked like a miniature Ferris wheel. This Ferris wheel constantly mixed the nutrient broth that these embryos lived in, and it made sure that the oxygen and pressure levels were just right so moving from mice to humans, you mentioned mock embryos. How are those useful? Scientists created substitutes for an embryonic stage known as the blastocyst. That is the first stage to feature specialized cells. And it looks kind of like a hollow ball that later implants itself into the uterus. So blastocyst is actually the stage when embryos are implanted in people that are trying to get pregnant through IVF. So this could be useful for helping with fertility treatments. That's right. Now, one thing that you need to know is that all of these imitation blastocysts aren't identical to the real thing, and they can't develop into babies. 
but some of them could offer an instructive and perhaps less controversial alternative to learn about early human development. All right, Catherine, we're going to stop there with those four runners up. There are five more on the site to check out. We actually covered quite a few on the podcast this year, so you can also listen to our earlier segments on, for example, what Mars quakes can reveal about the red planet's core, another on using a combination of ecstasy and therapy for PTSD, and one on why the new measurement of the muon's magnetism matters. Those are all linked from this episode page. I'm going to keep silent on the other runners and what the public chose for the reader's choice for Breakthrough. But we're going to go on to the Breakthrough of the Year. Catherine, what is it? Where's the drum roll, Sarah? I need a drum roll. We don't have that kind of technology. Absent drumroll, use your imagination. Science's breakthrough of 2021 is using artificial intelligence to predict the shapes of proteins. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about it. What is so important about predicting protein structure? Our bodies are made of hundreds of thousands of proteins, and scientists believe that more than 200 million exist. Now, these are critical for the building and functioning of every single cell in our body, and understanding their structure helps us understand how they work. Okay, so when you say predicting the structure, you're talking about you know something about them, but you don't know the actual shape. That's right. Each protein is made of a chain of amino acids, and the ordering of those tiny pieces determines how the whole thing twists and twirls and folds into its own unique shape. If we could figure out the shape of every single protein that exists in nature, we could discover new drug targets and uncover many of the other mysteries of life. Experimentally, this has been done as the gold standard with X-ray crystallography. But modeling with computers has actually been around since the 70s, and it was not so great for a while there. But in the last decade, it's really taken off. And we know this because there are competitions. Can you kind of describe what these competitions are like? Sure. The contests are actually one of the cooler parts of the story. Back in the 90s, when computer modeling was just starting to take off, Researchers launched something called the Critical Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction Competition. Now try saying that 10 times fast. Teams of scientists would get together to try and solve the structures of proteins that other researchers were mapping with some of these different methods that you mentioned. After a couple of months, the modelers would check their work against the experiments to see how close they got. Scores above 90 were considered as good as the experimentally solved structures. But to be honest, the first scores were not that impressive. Most teams scored below 60, <laughs> right? You know, like I'm looking back at my high school physics. And, <laughs> You're like, that's me. <laughs> yeah, not exposing anything about my past. But anyway, by 2018, they had figured out all sorts of tricks to improve their predictions. And their models were churning out structures that regularly scored in the mid-70s. So scores were getting better as proteins were better understood, too. Then we bring in the AI. An AI called AlphaFold entered the ring. AlphaFold 
which was developed by Google's sister company, DeepMind, used machine learning to train itself on databases of previously solved structures. In its first competition, its scores hovered around 80. Jump us forward to 2021. What happened this year? AlphaFold's successor, AlphaFold 2, came onto the scene. It outperformed everyone with a median score of 92.4. That's a grade I'd like to take home to my parents. (laughs) Scientists had never seen anything like it. So our chemistry, technology, everything reporter, Bob Service, wrote this story. And he mentioned that Protein Data Bank, PDB, this is a place where everyone puts their structures, had I think 184,000 structures. And this is the central repository where you'd expect to see everything. Now, with AlphaFold 2 and other people who are using similar programs, they determined 350,000 structures in 2021. Okay, so there were 184,000 before, and now we added 350,000 in 2021, and there are millions more to come. DeepMind just churned out those 350,000 proteins that you mentioned. All of those are found in the human body. In fact, they make up 44% of all proteins found inside of us. And we should emphasize that this isn't just AlphaFold and DeepMind doing this at this point. Beyond DeepMind, other programs are out there, including one at the University of Washington called Rosetta Fold. That solved the structure of hundreds of proteins, all of which are common drug targets. Scientists around the world are solving not just individual proteins, but complexes of them. And they're starting to map out how these proteins interact. Even as we speak, researchers are using AlphaFold 2 to model changes in the spike protein of the latest SARS-CoV-2 variant, Omicron. Yeah, amazing. It might actually be hard to keep this out of the top spot next year, too. Right before we stop here, Catherine, I want to mention just a few other things listeners can find on the site, online. The rest of the runners-up are breakdowns and a follow-up on a year of COVID vaccines by reporter Kai Kuferschmidt. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an online news editor. You can find a link to all of our breakthrough and runner-up coverage at science.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Up next, books editor Valerie Thompson reveals her top science books for 2021. know about you, but I read a lot of books in 2020 and like half as many in 2021, but both years were well over my normal average. But you know who reads a lot of books every year, no matter what's happening? Our books review editor, Valerie Thompson, and she's here with a few to share. Hi, Valerie. Hi, Sarah. I love your picks this year. They really run the gamut, except for once, we're not going to talk about food. I know, but we will talk about food at the end of the segment, so... All right, we'll have a little surprise there. Before we get to the list of books for the year, let's talk for a second about how you pick them. Any list of of end-of-the-year roundup type things, it's never going to encompass every good book that was published that year. I wouldn't even pretend like I was able to do such a thing. So this is just some favorites from throughout the year. Of course, there are many other good books published this year, but just 
some highlights that, you know, if you missed the first time around, maybe worth circling back for. Okay. And I arbitrarily came up with this order. We're going to go from small to large, which I think, at least in history, was how science would order the research section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I, I like your organization structure. I think that works for us. Okay. So smallest we have here is the immune system. Definitely a big deal, but lots of small molecules and cellular stuff happening. I think we all became a little more versed in T-cells and antigens this year. Will this book that you're going to highlight here build on that for us? Yeah, so the book is Philip Detmer's Immune, A Journey into the Mysterious Systems That Keep You Alive. And this is, like you said, you know, we've all kind of become armchair immunologists over the past 18 months. I mean, the thing is, like, the immune system is is really complicated. And so I'm not implying that we don't really know what we're talking about when we're talking about T-cells and things like that, but we could probably all benefit from a little immunology primer. So this is this book is great for that. It covers all the hits you mentioned, T-cells, B-cells, macrophages, neutrophils, viruses, how vaccines work, and there's even a short closing chapter on COVID-19. We should talk about the author of this piece. He's actually the creator of a science-focused YouTube channel with millions of followers. Does that come out in the book? Yeah. Detmer runs the uber-popular YouTube channel Kurzgesagt, which is German for in a nutshell. The last time I checked, they had 17 million subscribers. And wow, that was like 1 million more subscribers than when we published our review in, in the beginning of November. So it's growing. They have a huge audience. But it's great because the book is like the videos that you'll find on Kurzgesagt. Um, it's filled with these colorful illustrations that explain what different cells do, how they work together. It's very playful. It's very irreverent. They talk about receptors as the noses of your cells and <laughs> compare different categories of T-cells to character classes in Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, like I'm sure this is going to upset some serious immunologist, but he gets the science right and he does it all while keeping things light and conversational, which is a pretty tall order for this topic. Oh, for sure. Okay, let's step up one size. We're going to talk about flora and fauna that break the law. And this is by an author I really like, Mary Roach. She's been writing amazing nonfiction science books for a long time. So Valerie, what exactly is non-human law-breaking in this book? Okay, yeah. So I'm a huge fan of Mary Roach, too. Her latest book is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. And as you kind of hinted at, it centers on human-wildlife conflict. So looking at the quote-unquote crimes that were committed against humans by animals and plants, she first kind of looks at these so-called felonies, deaths caused by bears and by elephants and poisonous plants and falling trees. And then she kind of moves on to lesser offenses. So things like birds interfering with airplanes and monkeys that harass city dwellers and deer colliding with cars, things like that. I immediately thought of the monkey that took a picture with someone's camera. (laughs) It's a pretty minor infraction, though. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. There's this wild story in the book about these monkeys that go into hospitals in the city in India, and they'll pull out the glucose from, like, patients, and they'll, like, suck it out of the tubing. Like, it's it's wild. There's some really, really crazy stories. I was going to say, I bet there's some really good anecdotes in there. Where does the science come into it? How is this a science book? So she delves into the various interventions that we humans have come up with to solve 
some of the proximal problems to these interactions. So bear-proof dumpsters and remote control robotic predator birds to scare away nuisance birds. And there's even this whole interesting chapter on like studies that are done to figure out the most humane extermination methods for problem species. Oh, really interesting. The only, I guess, criticism I have is that it kind of missed the chance to talk about the larger problem, which is that these so-called offenses that wildlife are committing are not exactly unprovoked. They're happening because of things we're doing, like encroaching on their habitats and destroying their traditional food sources and introducing invasive species where they don't belong. So I guess the book is wonderful. That would just be my only criticism. Yeah. I mean, why should they follow the laws of citizens if they don't have the right to vote? (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, I guess that's like a way to look at it. It's like they don't have rights. Why should they abide by our laws? All right. We're going to get a lot bigger here, but not the biggest topic yet. This one is just simply the dawn of everything, a new history of humanity. I remember I actually reached out to you a while ago and said, are we going to cover this book? Because I know a lot of David Graeber fans. So can you talk about how this book came about? Right. So David Graeber actually passed away unexpectedly. He was an anthropologist and activist. And then he co-wrote this book with David Wengrow, who's an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. How all-encompassing are we talking here? Pretty all-encompassing. I mean, it's they're covering 200,000 years of human history. When you consider that the book is over 700 pages long, that actually seems pretty short for 200,000 years, but they make it work. It seems to take apart a lot of ideas about the past, about human history. Can you walk us through some of the big concepts they tackle? We've had this idea about ancient societies for a long time, that they were all these primitive bands of egalitarian hunter-gatherers who just reacted to things that happened to them, and that's how human history unfolded. But these authors re-examine the historical documents, and they incorporate what they found there with new and emerging archaeological data. And they show that ancient people actually exhibited a great deal of intelligence and a great deal of agency in how things played out. So, for example, they show that historical hunter-gatherers weren't just a bunch of simple, small-scale societies. They often built very vast, very complex settlements with things like currency and hierarchies. And agriculture wasn't a turning point for everybody. That's another concept that gets tackled here. They kind of went back and looked at some new data that suggests that a lot of societies chose to kind of shift seasonally from these very dense settlements and intensive gardening to periods where they were more dispersed in hunting and foraging. And it was it was a cultural practice within many cultural practices that was kind of picked up and used when it was useful and discarded when it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Not a point of no return. Once you get to agrarian practices, you're now an agrarian society. Exactly. With all this contradiction, you know, all this refutation of the way so many people think about our past, I'm guessing this is probably a controversial book, but, you know, is that what it was trying to accomplish in the first place? This is obviously bound to be controversial. There's a lot of long-held wisdom that's being questioned in this book. I think the biggest thing that our reviewer kind of identified is that this is something that's going to stimulate a lot of discussions and, and drive some new lines of research, not only in science, but in the humanities. And I think that's a great accomplishment for a book. Mm-hmm. All right. Time for the biggest scale there is. Cosmic. Nothing's bigger than the universe, right? But this book is both universal and personal, not only talking about the laws that rule the universe, but also the people involved in discovering those laws and their practices. We are talking about The Disordered Cosmos by theoretical physicist Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. It begins with this very whirlwind tour of 
the standard model of particle physics, general relativity and cosmology with a focus on recent advances in dark matter, which is her specialty. But that's that's actually just the first four chapters. So from here, she goes on to examine the intersections of physics and race, both in terms of the actual physics associated with melanin, which is the pigment in skin that determines how dark your skin is. And then in terms of the barriers that are faced by people of color who choose to pursue a career in physics, and then more generally, how we decide who gets to call what science. How does this book balance these two topics? I mean, it's a lot, all of modern physics and then also the culture of academia. Yeah, it's really challenging. I mean, it's Prescott Weinstein doesn't sugarcoat her critiques of the state of modern physics, but her love for the field is really there too. So it, it's a nice balance. And I, I think that it's one that we owe ourselves to read, even if it's a little bit challenging. Is that why you included it in your list this year? Yeah, exactly. I think that there's plenty of raw, raw science is great books out there and many wonderful ones. But we, you know, like I said, we also owe it to ourselves to confront the parts that aren't working. This book does a little bit of both. There's a lot of enthusiasm for science and for physics here. Also some criticisms that need to be made, maybe. Okay, so that wraps up our in-depth coverage of books. And you have one bonus book you wanted to mention. Yeah, so just one last one that I'll mention quickly is a book called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. This is by journalist Elizabeth Colbert. So this book kind of explores the various efforts underway to undo man-made environmental disasters. So everything from controlling invasive species that we introduced to certain habitats without realizing how destructive they'd be, to engineering coral that can survive in warmer waters, to um, trying to save coastal lands that have been deprived of sediment and undermined by oil and gas drilling. Well, I want to mention that everyone should check out the science book for kids reviews that came out earlier this month. I have already ordered Chickenology. <laughs> definitely a place to go if you were looking for some last minute kid gifts. Yeah, yeah. And another one I would mention from that list is a book called Mimic Makers. And this is looking at biomimicry and how that plays a role in invention and science. It's fun because it's it's for early grade schoolers. And I feel like we don't often let that age group into how science works behind the scenes in terms of inspiration. So it's kind of neat in that way. And we tease this a little bit. We are not covering a food book, but there's a good reason. Yes. So in next year's podcast series, we're going to be covering the intersections of food and science. Yes, it's such a big topic. I'm so excited. Nutrition, agriculture, I don't know, food chemistry. <laughs> right. Food waste, supply chains, yes. you know, sustainable farming, lab-grown meats, all those things. Yeah, I'm really excited to delve into it. Yes, me too. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Valerie. It's been really fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Valerie Thompson is the book's editor for science. You can find a link to the list of books we discussed and our podcast, including last year's roundup of books at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. You can write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. And you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Kresge with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.